John's Gospel, chapter 18, this evening, Sunday night, through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, we come to chapter 18. And when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which we know to be the Garden of Gethsemane, where he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. John's Gospel, and for purposes that the Holy Spirit has and that we're not aware of, he moves in John's Gospel from uh, Jesus' time with the disciples in the upper room and the upper room discourse and then Jesus' prayer for the disciples uh, after delivering this discourse or this sermon or this teaching uh, to them. And then here we find ourselves suddenly in the Garden of Gethsemane. The other Gospels tell us that Jesus and the disciples left from that upper room in the city of Jerusalem Uh, They made their way across the Kidron Valley and then spent the night uh, in the the, uh, uh, Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus spent the final hours of the night praying to the Father related to the day that was approaching, the day in which he would die upon the cross, the disciples continually falling asleep on him as he had urged them uh, to watch and pray. And so uh, that brings us to this particular place in in understanding uh, the jump between the chapters. Uh, It is a place we're told in verse 2, this Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus uh, often met with his disciples. Um, In a trip to uh, the city uh, of Jerusalem, and a trip to Israel, um, this is a beautiful spot to go to, the Garden of Gethsemane. A church has been built there. They've made it into lovely, lovely grounds, but it's much more developed than it would have been at the time of Jesus. And when it talks about a garden, we're not talking about vegetables. We're not um, uh, talking about flowers or anything like that. We're talking about an olive grove. And that's where uh, uh, he would have uh, gone. It does my heart uh, good whenever I've been able to be there and to realize that this was a place that was special to Jesus. It was a place that he had a history with his disciples there. It was a place that was special to um, to the disciples. Jerusalem was not a... Um, special place for Jesus in terms of its treatment of him. Uh, He didn't have this familiarity, this ability to um, enjoy himself, to be with the disciples, to be what happened in that that garden, not in Jerusalem, not in the city of, uh, not in the temple. All of that was geared up very much, not everybody, but very much geared up under the Jewish religious system, most of the Jewish religious leaders of that time uh, against him, so that he had a place of refuge. It was a blessing to him, always blesses my heart. It's interesting how uh, the most kind of anonymous places or the most un, almost unglamorous, it would be like 
you know, here we are blessed in Modesto with the orchards and you've got peach orchards and almond orchards. And um, if you want to go out and, and stand in an orchard, you can do that any time that we, we would want to. And there's so many orchards, you look at it and you say, well, what's so special about that? But even the most ordinary things in life become uh, special in our lives when we have a history there. And especially when it's a place of familiarity related to the Lord. You don't have to go to the other side of the world. I'm convinced that when, if the Lord tarries and uh, we are on our deathbeds, we're probably not going to remember some trip to some exotic part of the world or, or some uh, odd exhibit that we happen to see in San Francisco or something like that. I think we'll remember something that we treasured in, in our relationship with the Lord. It'll be the table that we sat at for our quiet times each day or the chair uh, or whatever the environment might be, the church that we attended, and to look back and say, that was, that's the place that I'll miss if I miss anything for that nanosecond that I move from this life uh, to the one to come. And so this was the place that this was for both Jesus and uh, the, the disciples. We're told in verse 2 that it was a place that was known by Judas, uh, and the fact that Jesus went to this familiar place that night uh, on the night before his bet betrayal and stayed there until all the way through the morning of his betrayal. Um, he had dismissed uh, Judas Iscariot uh, earlier in the night to go off and do his betrayal of him for 30 pieces of, uh, of silver. But the fact that Jesus goes to this familiar place and spends the night is a clear indication uh, that Jesus is facing the day. If, there were, if you were looking to escape the day and you knew Judas was going to betray you, the last place you would go would be the Garden of Gethsemane because that's exactly where he would expect to, uh, to find you. And Jesus doesn't do that. He, goes, he makes it very easy uh, for Judas to uh, catch him and, uh, and to have him arrested in that place. The th one of the themes of, of this entire uh, event or sequence early in, in the day of Jesus' crucifixion is, is the word betrayal. It's used uh, once there in verse 2, and then again it's used in, in verse uh, 5. And, and it is one of the major themes of Jesus' arrest in the Garden uh, of Gethsemane. And here was a man, Judas, who knew Jesus so well that he knew exactly where to find him in the Garden of Gethsemane because he met there for fellowship and rest with the disciples and had included Judas for three and a half years um, in that time uh, with him. Betrayal is always awful to be betrayed by another human being. It is always awful in its plain vanilla form. It is especially awful when the person who betrays us uses their familiarity with us, knowing us as they do, 
knowing us because we gave them that kind of a place in our life to see us with that kind of intimacy, that kind of closeness, and then to take the information that is gained in that environment and then to use it to betray us, that is the ultimate in betrayal in terms of, of relationships. And, uh, and uh, as Judas does it here, I have never been divorced, and, uh, but I've known many people who have been divorced and loved ones and watched them go through the whole thing. And they're uh, rightly described, I would guess. They certainly look at it like it from a distance to me as something that is in some respects even worse than death. And how often in that kind of a situation, especially in the coarseness of our culture, anything and everything is pulled out to the top in order to uh, gain some kind of leverage and betrayal of the other person. But it isn't just in, in uh, divorces. One of the things that seeing how awful this betrayal of Judas is to Jesus, one of the things that it's intended to do in our lives is to make us look at it, be repulsed by it, and then by the grace of God determine that we will never do that. Never betray a person and never betray a person in that way. To take what I have learned from them because they made their self vulnerable and transparent to me and then ever become the kind of person that will then use it as a weapon against them. Our culture is full of this. Anybody on social media that wants to pop their head up out of the foxhole and say something, uh, any kind of thing that anybody knows about them then gets thrown uh, in their face and it's to be resisted in our lives. We may have to make hard decisions, we may have to deal with things in our lives, but we're never to reduce ourselves to the level of Judas in our treatment of, uh, of other people. It also, I think it reminds us of the fact that um, as we think about how much God knows about us, he knows everything about us. He knows more about us than we know about us, or we can even remember about us. And has he ever taken the intimacy of that knowledge and one time thrown it in our face or used it as a means of betrayal? He has never, ever done it. He will never violate a relationship in that way. And so, in not only does Judas model for us what not to do in those kind of situations and temptations to grab everything that we can and throw it at the other person, but Jesus models for us exactly what we uh, ought to do. And so, uh, this betrayal that is done here, I think it's important as we look at this issue of betrayal, not to look at it and say, well, uh, just like Jesus said, it was betrayed, it was a, a, a prophesied of in the Old Testament, and uh, he knew it was going to come, and so it really didn't, it was just water off a duck's back. It meant nothing to, uh, to him, uh, did no harm to him. 
uh, or hurt him in any way. And yet, when we read the same, uh, uh, a, a different account in Luke's gospel of the same event, we're told that while he, Jesus, was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them, drew near to Jesus to kiss him, betrayed him with a kiss. And Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? It's not that Jesus didn't know it, that it was going to happen. But the prophecies in the Old Testament concerning this betrayal never indicated that it would go to that place. He would be betrayed, yes, but not betrayed by a kiss. I mean, it's just an awful, awful uh, uh, scene. It is important because we're all going to experience betrayal in our lives. And that's just the way that it's going to happen uh, in our lives. There'll be very few of us, let's put it this way, that won't experience that in the course uh, of our lives. And it's important for us, uh, related to those betrayals, to be able to use Jesus in, as an example, not only in the moment of the betrayal, but then subsequently how to, to handle it. I remember in, in, in this vein, it comes to mind uh, periodically for me, I mention it every so often as well. I remember hearing Gail Irwin talk about when he was in seminary and, uh, or Bible college or uh, somewhere being trained for becoming a pastor and they warned him, don't get close to the congregation because they'll hurt you. And he said, I tried that, but it was too lonely. <laughs> And that's the fact of the matter. And, it, and I don't say that to say that pastors are more betrayed than anybody else in life. I don't believe that uh, to be uh, true. But to look at Jesus here, and if ever there was anybody that could say, I'm done with it, I've had it with people, this is the way that I get treated, I'm never going to allow another person to get close to me again, or reveal myself, my heart, my fullness to anyone else again, where would we be tonight if that's how he responded to the betrayal? And, and so he didn't. And uh, he moved forward. He continued whatever it, it, that, that situation as he, he handled it, gives us a model for looking at it and, and experiencing those things in our life, learning what we can about them. One of the things they will always do is give us an understanding of this part of Jesus's life that we would never understand with the kind of depth that we do if we've been betrayed this deeply in life. And to look at it and to uh, commune with him, but then to watch that he did not now keep himself uh, safe then for the rest of, of his life and eternity from ever being hurt again by shunning people and building walls between them. Uh, that is not the way to address betrayal, but to go to the Lord and then trust Him to work it together for good in our lives. Doesn't mean that it's good, but He works it for good in, in deepening our understanding of Christ and 
deepening our understanding and our compassion for people who are in the middle of a great betrayal. But God works it together for good, but we never want to respond to it by building walls and, and then saying, uh, uh, you know, I am a rock and I, I am an island and, and uh, uh, rocks feel no pain. I'm never going to let anybody get uh, close again. Sorry for Simon and Garfunkel. I didn't even care for him that much, but... Um, you know, the things you hear, they, they have no impact upon you. You hardly remember them. So, uh, and, and so here is this awful, awful betrayal, and, but it has much to teach us. And then in verse 3, then Judas, having uh, received detachment, uh, a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees uh, came there with lanterns, torches, uh, and weapons. And so here we see the arresting party coming to arrest Jesus here. Uh, there's Judas that we're told is a, a, among the group, uh, a detachment of troops, the uh, Greek word that is used for the band or the attachment there in verse 3. Uh, there are some who estimate the number of uh, soldiers to be in the neighborhood of 200. That was the word that was used for a detachment of 200 Roman soldiers in the ancient world. Uh, others uh, argue that it's a, a tenth of a legion, uh, 600 men. And then you add to that the, the religious leaders, the temple police, they had their own police force. And you might have a crowd uh, uh, certainly of several hundred and uh, perhaps even approaching a thousand. Whatever the number it was, it was a very, very large uh, group coming to arrest. Very hostile, very dangerous, outwardly speaking, uh, situation. So here you have um, 12, thir- 12 with Jesus, and then this uh, arresting group uh, that numbers in, in the hundreds that are there. They're armed with lanterns and torches and, and weapons, and it certainly indicates that they did not anticipate their arrest of Jesus uh, to be something that was going to go come off easily. Uh, They recognized his power, they recognized his popularity among the common people, and they realized this might get uh, messy, and so they come out against him in force. And Jesus, therefore, knowing, verse 4, that all things would come upon him, went forward and said to them, whom are you seeking? So he steps out from among the twelve and he poses the question then uh, to, uh, to them, who, who it is it that, that you are uh, seeking? And so Jesus makes sure, uh, John here makes sure that we know that when he asks this, he's not asking it because he didn't know who they were seeking, and, uh, but, uh, uh, but in, in order to, to pose the question and get the response from them. It's a beautiful picture, I think, of Jesus' strength uh, and his courage. Uh, Jesus didn't uh, make a run for it. He didn't see the crowd coming, break up the, the, you know, into uh, four groups of three, everybody go in a different direction and maybe, uh, maybe they'll just chase one group and then, you know, kind of like you watch a Western or something like that. And then there's always some scout that can track you over a rock. Um, but uh, again, he just, he knows what the day is about. He just comes forward very straightforwardly. They respond in, uh, to the question and they answered verse five, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. And then Jesus said to them, I am 
uh, he and Judas who betrayed them also stood with them. And when Jesus had said to them, uh, I am he, they drew back and they fell backwards to the ground. And so Jesus identifies himself. They say, we've come for Jesus of Nazareth. That's who we've come to uh, arrest. Jesus identified himself as the one that they were looking for. Very, very instructive, very, very interesting way because he declares to them, uh, not I am uh, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, but you notice the, the he there, for I am he, the he is in italics, it doesn't exist. It's, a, it's an addition of the translator. He says, I am. And he takes and he, he ascribes the very name of God Almighty uh, to himself from the book of Exodus. You remember when Moses said to God, uh, you're sending me to speak to the people. Who should I say sent me as the God of Israel? What is your name? And the Lord said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, you shall tell the children of Israel, I am has sent you. And here Jesus clearly ascribes deity to himself at this moment of, of his arrest. And these religious leaders who rejected him for the most part because of his claim to be divine, his claim to be the Son of God, uh, now they not only hear him ascribe deity to himself once again in that environment, uh, but then they experienced uh, the divine power uh, of Jesus as a witness to his claim. They'd come to arrest Jesus of Nazareth, and uh, he revealed himself as far more uh, than that. And so they fell backwards to the ground. You picture it like a domino thing. All of the lanterns, all of the weapons, everything goes in all directions as they fall down uh, there in that scene before uh, Jesus. And so they didn't fall down at his question, whom are you seeking? But they did fall down at his name. Of course, this reminds us in Philippians chapter 2 that one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess at the name of Jesus. There'll be no resistance to it on that day. Some as a profession of true faith in Him and everlasting life, some as a, a judgment uh, upon the folly of having rejected Him and His salvation uh, unto uh, judgment. Again, everywhere we see in this scene, uh, here you have another opportunity presented to Jesus by which He might escape at the moment they're all falling back down. Come on guys, let's get out of here as quick as... There's none of that going on here. The demonstration of his power and uh, the translation of the scene here is that there would have been no arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane that morning apart from Jesus' willingness and cooperation. And he made sure that they knew that. So these great religious, these great military men made very aware of the fact as they lay on the ground, they are not in control of this situation. Not if they brought 10,000 troops with elephants, with Hannibal, trying to cross the Alps. They were not in control of the situation, and then Jesus allowed them to arrest him. But he makes them arrest him for the real reason they wanted to arrest him. And that was his claim to deity. And he makes them do that. 
You remember that later on in this whole process in one of the other Gospels, they're asking Jesus, uh, Pilate, the Jewish religious leaders, they're asking him all kinds of questions as they're trying him before, uh, before his crucifixion. And he's silent, he's silent, he's silent. He doesn't answer any kind of questions of them. And then finally, a question gets asked of him that is worthy of being answered. And they ask him if he really is the Son of God. And then he answered that question affirmatively. Again, he makes, he's going to allow them to crucify him. But he's going to make sure that they realize that they are crucifying him on the basis of this, this issue and not any other issues that uh, they were feigning related to all of this. And then in verse 7, uh, he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I have told you that I am. And therefore, if you seek thee, me, let these go their own way, that the, that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke of those whom you gave me. Remember, he prayed to the Father, those whom you gave me, chapter 17, I have uh, not lost uh, a single uh, one. And so he secures the release of the disciples here. I was thinking about that this last week as I was, you know, looking at the passage and, and, and all. Uh, here in that scene, he steps forward, um, Every indication is that they have come now with this size of a force to not only arrest Jesus, but to arrest the 11, uh, as you might expect that they, they would do. And so Jesus secures uh, their release, uh, and, and he does so, and it's all a fulfillment of, uh, to the Father, of those whom you gave me, I have not uh, lost one. And I was just thinking about the just the security, meditating upon the keeping work of Jesus in our lives. I've walked with the Lord since 1980. And I'm not the old wise owl. I'm not um, the repository of, of every experience that a Christian can have. We know that there are other parts of the world that are much, much harder to live in as a Christian. But I do know that through every mountaintop, every valley, Every single thing in between that I've gone through, He hasn't uh, ceased His grip upon me and upon you. He doesn't just save us, but He keeps us. And He does whatever He has to do in order to do that. And we look back on our lives, and when we look back on our lives, and sometimes I think about, um, I think about people... Um, you know, young men uh, entering into the pastorate. And it's like, how in the world do you prepare them for what in the world is going to come their way? I mean, pastors can be taken out a hundred different ways. Uh, or anybody can, but, but pastors. And the only thing that you can have confidence in is that when God calls someone, when He saves someone, He's going to keep His grip on them and He's going to give them the grace to fulfill what He calls them to. And our minds immediately go to the great hymn, 
through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Think about the dangers and the toils and the snares that you have been through in the months or the years or the decades that you have walked with the Lord. And what's the only explanation? Being the numbskulls that we know that we are, whatever other people may think of us, it's all the grace of God. It is all the grace of God and the firmness of His grip upon our lives and that He does not manifest His deity in protecting us in the same way that He did uh, the 11 in that Garden of Gethsemane. But protect our lives, He does. And the uniqueness of our lives and what He's called us to do and be. And all of that is a witness to His deity as well. If He were a great example or merely a great teacher, could He have gotten you from where you were when you began as a Christian to where you are today with what you've seen and been through and the temptations of it and the discouragement and the the isolation and the shunning? It could never happen. It's a testimony to his deity and his uh, work of his deity uh, within our lives. And then Simon Peter having a sword. Oh, no. A fisherman with a sword. (laughs) Having a sword, he drew it. Hundreds against eleven means nothing to Simon Peter. And he struck the high uh, high priest's servant and cut off his right ear, and the servant's name was Malchus. And so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. I like these are not complicated sentences. It's a very, very emotional scene. He doesn't speak compound commands here. And uh, shall I not drink the cup which my father has uh, given me? What in the world are you trying to do to rescue me from the very thing I came into the world uh, to do, however well-intentioned that it, uh, that it might be. So he draws the sword. He had said uh, earlier that when uh, Jesus had uh, prophesied of his coming betrayal, how in the world could I ever betray you? I'm willing to die for you. And here's this point where he is willing to die for Jesus on, uh, in that, that scene. The interesting thing is that he's willing to do that in that moment, but just in a few moments from then, he's going to deny knowing Jesus three times. There is a, there is a way, and I, I've never been martyred. I've never been beheaded or shot for my Christian faith, obviously. So I can't speak as an authority related to that. But there is the ability to be heroic, to be brave for a moment in a a scene, and God would give us the grace if that needed to happen. But sometimes the far harder thing to do is to live the Christian life without betraying Christ in the nitty-gritty of the relationships uh, in life. And that's where Peter is going to stumble and he's going to fall for reasons that we'll, uh, we'll get to. And so his background here is he's probably uh, aiming for uh, the head uh, of the 
the servant of, of the high priest. The high priest's servant probably has some kind of a, a head protection on it, and, and his sword uh, comes onto that protection, slides down to one side, and cuts off his right ear. Which potentially tells us that if Peter is right-handed, that the servant had his back to him. And he takes that sword out and he begins to flail and then off comes this uh, ear that is, is cut off. And Jesus is saying, you know, to, uh, and Peter is saying to Jesus, now this is great. You're, you're, you do great in the temple. You do great in, in uh, Jerusalem. But this is real life. And in real life, you got to grab a sword and you got to do what you got to do in a scene like this. And, and uh, they only understand force and the message of, of the sword. And so he's very zealous, very, very misguided. He is completely out of uh, touch with what is actually happening in the middle of that scene. I find, and, and I've, I've cut off a few ears in my day, I... I find that usually when I use the sword of the Spirit or some other means by which to attack another person and cut off their ear in some kind of a misguided defense of God, and now I'm all, you know, jacked up and I'm all excited and the adrenaline is, is going and I'm concerned for the reputation of God. I usually find out later that I was focusing on, focusing on some very insignificant issue with this other person or persons and I was completely missing the big picture. And I blew the opportunity. In fact, I may have made more work for Jesus now to bring them to come to know him than if I had never been a part of their life. Here you have a scene where this giant uh, arresting force comes to arrest Jesus. Jesus allows himself to be arrested. The greatest day uh, that, that, that begins the series of the three greatest series in human history, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, it has begun. They have come to arrest the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Peter jumps in, and what is everybody focused on? Malchus's ear lying down in the dirt. He has taken the focus of this majestic event and made it about something that is an absolute nothing, that, that is not a concern of God at that moment at all. Now we know from Luke's gospel that the Lord took the ear and restored it to Malchus and and uh, healed him. The Lord does come in and do damage control on, on the damage that we can sometimes create uh, in, in that way. But I think that anytime we do anything out of the motivation, God can call us to do whatever he wants to do. But if I feel pressed in a conversation or in a situation to somehow uh, buy the sword, uh, by the weapons of the world to defend God and His nature and His purposes, uh, I'm, I'm going to make a, a, a big mess of things. And one of the things that's nice about getting a little bit older in the Lord is number one, 
you've seen quite a few things multiple times. And so you've learned from them a little bit. So you, you learn how to, to handle them a little bit better. It's just, it's just uh, uh, Christian uh, growth that, that goes on. And so you, you, you realize, listen, I, as I say once in a while, we can't keep ourselves from getting the common cold or RSV or whatever this other flu was that was going around. And uh, we can't uh, match our socks sometimes without a bright light being able to differentiate between black and navy blue. And I'm going to defend God. He needs me to defend him. He doesn't. It never hurts me to be reminded that the weapons, and Jesus is going to tell Peter, put your sword away. The sword, that the weapons that we uh, wield as, as Christians, the two most powerful weapons, not when you're trying to cut people's ears off, but when you're trying to reach them for the kingdom of God, trying to gain their surrender in order to enter into the kingdom of God, to gain their heart, their will, the two great weapons are not the weapons of our flesh or the world, but it is truth and it's love. And those are safe weapons to wield in that kind of a, of a situation. And so this is a scene that isn't distant from me uh, at all in terms of what, in a, a, a zeal that, Peter has for the Lord and all that he starts to do all of this. And so uh, uh, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Uh, shall I not drink the cup for which my father has given me? When he says, shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? He returns the entire focus of the situation back on what should have always been the focus of the situation before Peter's actions. And the Lord restores the situation uh, uh, here. And then, then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews, they arrested Jesus and they bound him. And again, that would have never happened and they knew it, except that Jesus allowed it. And they led him away to Annas first, uh, and to, uh, for his father, for he was the father-in-law uh, of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die uh, for the people. So now begins, in this gospel's account, all of the gospel accounts, the twofold trial of Jesus. On the morning of his crucifixion, he will endure two trials. One of them will be a religious trial at the hands of Annas the high priest, Caiaphas the high priest, Jewish high priest, uh, before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish kind of uh, religious council. John doesn't speak about that in his gospel. And then he will be tried not just by the Jews, but he will be tried then by the Gentiles, by Pilate, uh, which we won't get to uh, this evening. We look at it and say, what's the purpose of the trials? Okay, he's going to be crucified. All that needs to happen. Why does God the Father allow his son to go through the two trials? The trial on, uh, uh, on the part of the religious community 
and then a trial on the part of, of, of the secular community. And basically what was happening here was an examination of the Passover lamb. In the Old Testament, the lamb had to be without spot. It had to be without blemish in order to be, success, uh, to be a- a- acceptable as a sacrifice. And God allows religious man to do all that he could do to try and find a fault or a flaw that would disqualify Jesus as the Lamb of God to die on the cross to provide us with the forgiveness of sins. He allowed the Gentile world also the opportunity, and they're both going to strike out. But because he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he is without spot and without blemish. So the trials occur as they're recorded here. The first where the religious trial is described to us here. Jesus is brought before the high priest. He's led away to Annas first. Evidently, uh, Annas is the high priest's um, uh, living quarters were somewhat close to the, the, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, and indeed they were. It, 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 the compound was in the ancient world, just a short uh, distance. And so uh, they brought him to Annas uh, in order to, with the intent of Annas, who is the father-in-law, um, in uh, interrogating Jesus in order to discover a charge against him by which he could be charged and then ultimately be uh, executed. So this is basically a hearing. He wants to find the charge uh, so that he can then send him to his uh, uh, son-in-law, Caiaphas here, and uh, in order to do the formal charging. And so it was Annas who had the religious racket that was going up on uh, happening around the temple where he was overcharging for the animals. He was overcharging related to the money uh, changers. That was, a, that was completely under uh, a Jewish religious mob in terms of what was going on. He made literally millions and millions and millions of dollars in money back then uh, with this religious kind of scam of taking advantage of people's love for God to rob them of their money. And so some of these things where you see people who even continue to this day to use religion and to use God as a means of stripping money away from God's people. This is as old as it's ever, it could ever be. And it's an awful thing. So you remember that uh, very uh, close to this time of Jesus' arrest here, he had for the second time gone into the area of the temple and he had overthrown uh, the tables of the money changers and he had dispersed the animals. And he had done it at the beginning of his public ministry. He had done it at the end of his public ministry. In other words, Jesus' name was a household name in the household of Annas. Annas knew all about Jesus because he was a threat to this financial uh, religious ripoff empire that, that he had uh, uh, established. And so here he is brought before uh, Annas and, uh, and, and, um, uh, for the initial part of the religious trial. Uh, he's, Caiaphas, his son-in-law, was 
the high priest that was recognized by the Romans. Annas was the high priest represented by, uh, recognized as being authoritative by the Jews. The Jews didn't want that much power to be concentrated in a single man like Annas had, so they then made his son-in-law, Caiaphas, their high priest. And that's why Jesus went from Annas then to Caiaphas, because Annas was supposed to find the charges against Jesus, and then those charges go to Caiaphas, because only Caiaphas could then approach Rome. As, as the high priest. And so you have this whole uh, you know, mechanism that is going on here in the situation and the reason for uh, the order of what it is that is, uh, is happening here. And Simon Peter, he followed Jesus and so did another disciple, clearly John. This is how he refers to himself throughout the, uh, the gospel. And, uh, and uh, uh, now the disciple, that is John, was known to the high priest and he went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. It's speculated that um, John, remember, did come from a fishing family. Uh, speculated that their, their fishing, the fishing business was very, very good for the family and that fish were taken uh, uh, from the Sea of Galilee uh, uh, all the way into Jerusalem to supply uh, the, uh, the food for um, the high priest and also the food for um, the high priest. And, and, and so he would have had access into these courtyards. He would have been well known. Whatever the case, he was well known and trusted. And so he was allowed in. Peter was left outside the door uh, of the complex where Jesus was being tried. And then the other disciple, John, who was known to the high priest, went out. He spoke to her who kept the door. And then he brought uh, Peter in. And then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, are you not also one of this man's, uh, 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 you, <clears throat> excuse me, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And uh, Peter said, where's my sword? No, he said, I am not. Denial number one. Now the servants and the officers who had made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold. So it was an early spring morning. Uh, in a temperature that's very much like uh, California. And so the mornings can be cold. They had a cold uh, a fire there with which to warm themselves. Peter then stood by the fire and he warmed himself. And then you drop down to verse 25 and to continue the account related to Peter. And Simon Peter stood and he warmed himself. And therefore they said to him, uh, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him, uh, whose ear uh, he, Peter had cut off, uh-oh, uh, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? So the light was not the greatest, but he thought he recognized them. Peter denied knowing Jesus a third time, and immediately uh, the rooster crowed. What a disappointment Peter was. We remember that Peter, um, in denying the Lord, I mean, you, you put yourself in his shoes, especially after the boasting and all of those things, and I, I, he just had to be as crushed as, as a human being could be to have failed, to have been forewarned and then to fail the way that, that he did. 
And yet Jesus, when he spoke to Peter of his coming betrayal, he said, no, you're going to, you're going to betray me. You'll deny me three times before the cock crows. And, um, but he said, Satan has asked for you by name that he may sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've returned, strengthen the brethren. My grip is on your life, Peter. This is, you're going to fail miserably, but your faith is not going to fail. My purposes for your life are not going to fail. And when you return, strengthen the brethren. And Peter did return. And how did he strengthen the brethren? In the grace of God. In the grace of God. There are hardly two places you could go uh, better in the whole Bible for when you're in a place of great trial or discouragement or you failed or whatever for encouragement in the grace of God than First and Second Peter. It has been God accomplishing this through Peter's life now for 2,000 uh, years. Peter closes his second epistle and like two sentences before the end, he, his uh, closing remark is to anyone who reads it, be strong in the grace that is in Christ uh, Jesus. And he became an ambassador for uh, the grace of God. So he disappointed himself. The Lord Jesus knew uh, that, that it would happen. And yet the Lord took it and he worked it together for good in making Peter a person who would uh, encourage all of us as Christians in the grace of God, in the midst of our failures, when we do not surprise God, but we surprise ourselves and we disappoint ourselves, whatever that situation may be, that there is the grace of God for covering that situation God wasn't, hadn't even started using Peter yet. And he had to think that it was completely over for him. And yet, by the grace of God, God wasn't done uh, with him. And his ministry uh, continued forward. I'm going to stop there and we'll stop and pick it up in verse 19 because we want to have adequate time for the Lord's Supper. And we'll pick up the tail end of this trial that Jesus is in the middle of before the religious leaders and then before he heads into standing before Pilate. And so we want to partake of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, um, the, the juice uh, represents Jesus' blood shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins. Uh, the cracker represents his uh, body uh, given for us for our salvation. So we do this in remembrance of him uh, tonight. And so the, the ushers will pass out the bread, take the cracker. We're going old school again here on this. It's not all one package. And so take the cracker, hold on to it. We'll pray together and partake together, and then we'll do the same thing with the cup. And so if the men will come forward um, now and the worship team come forward, we'll pass out the, the Lord's, uh, Lord's Supper.